0: Been wondering on this first Sunday uh, of the of the new year uh, what to talk about, and was wondering uh, about doing sort of being very very practical about New Year's resolutions uh, and all of that stuff. And more and more, as I was thinking and praying about it, I, I just I just I just felt a burden really to 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 talk. And this is going to shock you. Uh, to talk this first Sunday of the year about Jesus. And I know that's really unusual, uh, but I couldn't think of anything more practical, anything more useful, anything better to talk about than incredible Jesus. Because when we get, when we get him, when we walk with him, when we follow him, all the other stuff falls into place. The reason I know that is from experience, but much more because he said so. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be... Sorry, is that Mark? No, sorry, 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 sorry. And (laughs) seek... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just getting a bit crazy this morning. Um, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. And uh, lots of people ask, and we can ask the question, uh, what is God like? And there's lots of ways we can get the answer. Creation speaks of the creator. Uh, uh. Particularly, especially in the Scripture. We look in the Scriptures if we want to see what God is like. Because this is is where we are told. But the ultimate way, the ultimate way is to look at Jesus. Because Jesus shows us ultimately what God is like. He is what's called the hermeneutic through which we understand the whole of Scripture. You know, there are some parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. Some of the Old Testament passages and all of that. But do you know what? It starts to fall into place when you view everything through the lens of Jesus. Um, in John chapter 14, uh, we read this. Verse 5, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So, how can we know the way? And that can be a question that lots of us are asking. Lots of people, what's the way? Where what where do I go with my job, with my career? Where do I go with my relationships? What house should I live in? All of those things. And here's the answer that Jesus gives: it's incredibly practical. Jesus answered, I am the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the way. When we come to him, we will know the way because he is the way. When we come to him, we will know the truth because he is truth. When we come to him, we will have life because he is the life. He is the source of all things. If you really know me, says Jesus, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, who was a little bit thick, said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus at this point did this. It doesn't say it in the original Greek, but I have had private revelation that he banged his head on a lectern. And then he said, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How on earth can you say, Show us the Father? You see, it says uh, that the Son is the exact representation of the Father. He is the precise, exact representation of what God is like. In other words, he is a chip off the old block. He is the spitting image of his dad. If you want to know the Father, look at Jesus. So who is Jesus? Jesus. I want to begin this year. And my prayer, I'm not going to say anything that's massively new maybe, but my prayer that I've been praying is that this morning we would get fresh revelation. That we would see Jesus again. That we would begin this year um, falling in love with him again. Some of us need to be born again again to come back to our first love, to to burn with love. And we can't until we see him. And the good news is he always wants to reveal himself to us. And the way I want to do this is uh, to look at Jesus, is to look at Jesus through Old Testament pictures. Uh, we, we can have this misunderstanding that the Old Testament is about God and Israel and the New Testament is about Jesus and uh, that's just so not true. The whole Bible is about Jesus. A uh, great Swiss theologian called Karl Barth once said Christ is in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed. I want to suggest that that is true and if it is true and he's in the Old Testament concealed, they haven't done a very good job of concealing him. Uh, Because I just want to look at a few places where it's like whispers of what is to come. And the reason I want to do this is I want you to know that the plan of salvation was from the beginning. It wasn't a last minute, oh my goodness, they've gone wrong. What are we going to do? God's in charge And God knew from the beginning. So who is Jesus? He is the ark of salvation. In the days of Noah, everybody sinned. Everybody was terrible. The things they did to each other. And God was grieved. God was grieved because of their sin. It was as if he was saying, if there was only one righteous human being. And then it says in Genesis that God found one who was righteous, who was blameless before God. His name was Noah. And he told the one righteous person, build me an ark, make it of wood. And anyone who joins you in the ark of salvation and becomes part of your family, even though they deserve the consequences of their sin, they will have life because of you. There was a whisper in the story of Noah of what was to come thousands of years later when Jesus built an ark of salvation. It was made of wood. I was going to point to the cross, but it's not there. And uh, and anyone who joins Jesus and becomes part of his family comes to life. He is the beloved son who was sacrificed on a hill outside Jerusalem. I haven't got time to read it, but if you read Genesis 22, it's this passage and, uh, where, where Abraham is asked to sacrifice his one son. And uh, God says at the beginning of Genesis 22, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and take him to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there. What What's that remind you of? What's that a distant echo of? Your son, your only son, whom you love. This is my son, whom I love. I am pleased with him, says the father to Jesus by the Sea of Galilee. By the river Jordan, rather. Wrong bit of water. He says it by the river Jordan. Uh, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, John 3.16. And Abraham had to take Isaac, his son, to the region of Moriah. Now, if you've got a proper Bible, and the definition of a proper Bible is it's got maps. They're the proper Bibles. Not these little tiny things. And certainly not anything that comes with an apple. And and if you look at at the map of the region of Moriah in Abraham's time, a couple of you are looking (laughs) condemned now. That was a joke. I don't believe that. Um, If you look at the region of Moriah in Abraham's time, and then you look at the map at the time of David or the time of Jesus, what you will see is is that right in the center of the region of Moriah is Jerusalem. So take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, to where Jerusalem will be built and sacrifice him on a hill there. And Abraham took him. And when they got just at the bottom of the hill, they left the donkey there. Isaac rode there on a donkey. Does that remind, is that a whisper of something? They left the donkey there and the father put the wood for the sacrifice on his son Isaac. And Isaac walked up the hill carrying the wood. Two thousand years later, the father Put the word for the sacrifice, the wooden cross, on his son Isaac, on his son Jesus. And Jesus walked up that hill carrying the cross. When it came time for Abraham to sacrifice his son, the Lord said, no, I will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. Abraham looked and he saw a ram caught in a thicket and he took it and he sacrificed it instead of Isaac. But that was a ram, not a lamb. And the reason for that is because God did provide a lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world 2,000 years later. And do you know what's amazing? Is Abraham called that hill, he called what he called the mountain, he said... He called it, the Lord will provide, he named it. And the writer of Genesis says, to this day, that is the name of this hill, the Lord provided the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's echoes in the life of Joseph. There's there's Joseph, whose older brothers, whose 10 older brothers, they were jealous of him they, they hated him, and they sold him into slavery. They sold him to death, and they sold, they sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Now, when I first read that, I thought, what a shame. You know, why couldn't it have been 30 pieces of silver? Then it would have been exact. And then I found out that 20 pieces of silver is the, was the going rate for a slave, In the time of Joseph. So they sold him as a slave for 20 pieces of silver. At the time of Jesus, the price had gone up to 30 pieces of silver. God even allowed for inflation. (laughs) We should say that to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. God knows his economics. And then Joseph was accused of a crime he did not commit, and he was falsely sentenced and thrown into the dungeon of death. And after years, he comes out, and he ends up sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh. And here's the amazing bit. Because of Joseph, his brothers who betrayed him, who sold him, who who denied him, Because of Joseph, they were saved from starvation. And he says to them, what you did, you meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. He sent me on ahead of you so that through me you might be saved. Echoes of Jesus. We betrayed him. We denied him. Our representatives, it's as if it was us. We sold him. Well, Judas did for 30 pieces of silver. The rest ran away. And he ended up in death. But he rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he saves. He saves those of us who walked away. Those of us who turned from him. He saves us. He is... The suffering servant of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. I haven't got time, but please read Psalm 22. It was this if it was written for Jesus to sing on the cross, it begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with the words, For he the Lord has done it. It ends with, It is finished. And it's got everything in between. Whispers of Jesus right through the Old Testament. In the Passover that the Jews would celebrate, they had to pick a lamb that was spotless without blemish. And Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And do you know what Pilate said when when before he handed him over to be put to death, he said, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him, spotless without blemish. Jesus said, Satan has nothing on me, nothing. And do you know what Satan is? He's called in the Bible, the accuser of the brethren. In fact, the name, the word Satan means accuser. And it says, day and night, he accuses us. So that's his main weapon. Do you realize Satan's main weapon is not, is not a nuclear bomb? It's not anything like that. It's accusation. He kills us. It's his speciality. Really? you want he, he, He'll find anything. But on Jesus, he can't touch him. He has nothing on me. That's important for us, and I'll try and explain that later. I've been reading over the last couple of weeks the story of Jonah an amazing story, an incredible story. God said to Jonah, Go to Nineveh and prophesy to them about their sin. And Jonah, being like some of us, he ran away from God's presence. He ran away, and he thought he could get away by getting on a ship how ridiculous. And there's a storm that comes. And uh, everyone on the ship is thinking, we're going to die. This is hopeless. They wake Jonah up. They say, has this got anything to do with you? And he says, well, actually, I'm running away from the presence of God. And they say, so it's your fault. And they say to Jonah, you can read all this in Jonah chapter one. and, And they say to him, what do we need to do to you in order for us to not perish? And he says, throw me overboard. And, um, and actually you think, well, that's a pretty good thing for Jonah to say. But, but when you're thinking about it, Jonah would have realized either we're all going to die or just I'm going to die. And so it, maybe it's better, I'll stand more of a chance the other side if I don't take everyone with me. So they throw him overboard And as with the story, whether you believe it's a parable or really happened, he ends up in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And the story of Jonah is a whisper of Jesus. The difference is Jesus didn't, like Jonah, run away from God's presence and God's will. Jesus ran to God's presence and God's will. Jesus... Jesus ran to the cross. Jesus was given over to death like Jonah was given over to death in the fish. And Jesus spent three days in the grave so that we would not die because of our sin. Because Jesus was thrown overboard, we get to live. Jonah was running away to escape from God's will. Jesus was walking deliberately to fulfill God's will. And this is when it brings it to us. This is where it brings it home. We have a choice. We can either live, and this is really important. I don't know how many of you have made New Year's resolutions. I'll be honest with you, I've given up. Because they just depress me. I make resolutions and by the end of the first week in January, I feel an utter failure. And when you get to my age, and it's happened every year, you think, I'm just not even going to try. But you know what? We can either live by rules and regulations and resolutions and self effort, or we can live by grace. What does that mean? Older brothers live by self-effort, and older brothers and sisters, and I'm not talking about if you're, an. I'm the oldest in my family, of my brother and sister, uh, so I'm not talking literally, I'm talking the syndrome. Older brother syndrome is, is where you live by rules and regulations, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and the result of that is you end up jealous, you end up bitter. You end up judgmental. Anyone ever got there? Anyone ever? And, and do you know what? When you do that, it's like New Year's resolution. I'm going to read my Bible every day. Oh, it's the fifth and I'm four days behind. I need to, I need to anyone know that one? I need to get my act together. I need to, come on. And, and if we don't, we feel a total failure. If we do, it's even worse. It is even worse. This is, this is what I do. When I do that, when I succeed, I come to church and I look round and I think, I bet none of them have read their Bible every day. Look at them. They don't look like they've read their Bible every day. They, they, half of them look half saved. The other half, I'm not sure if they're saved at all. No, if only they were like me. Oh, what this church would be if they were like me. Jesus told a story of a Pharisee who said exactly the same thing. You see, when we fail, we condemn ourselves. When we succeed, pride comes in and we condemn everyone else. And I'm not sure which is better. I think the first is probably better than the second. Because pride is a killer sin. And it's an older brother sin. Look at the older brothers of Joseph. Uh, They they gave him away. They threw him away. Look at the Pharisees with Jesus. They were full of rules and regulations. And because Jesus wasn't, they wanted to kill him. They They were jealous of him. Look at the story of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, it's amazing how the the sadness of that story Jesus told is that the younger brother, the younger brother who'd been with prostitutes, ends up in the father's house having a party thrown for him, and the older brother who'd been religious and gone to church every day and read his bible every day and did all of that stuff we don't know if he ends up in the father's house or not because you know what older brothers they don't know how to have fun older brothers don't have any freedom because they're slaves There's no joy in being an older brother. Do you know when the older brother came close to the house, it says, Jesus says, he heard music and dancing. And his first response was, no, it wasn't. Wow, music and dancing. There's a party, I'm going. His first response was, music and dancing. What's gone wrong? Why am I not there? And he won't go in. And it's slaves don't know how to have fun. Sons and daughters do. Sons and daughters do. This is serious. It's important we understand this. Do you know, I realised the last few weeks, you know, I keep hearing people saying, oh, I, I, want, I wish I was part of the New Testament church. I want to go back to the New Testament church. And every time I hear that, I want to shout at the person who says it, have you read about the New Testament church? Are you serious? You really want to go back there? You want to join the church at Corinth where they wouldn't share their picnic, where there was utter sin, where there was utter selfishness, where, oh my goodness, you really want to go back there? And you know what? Paul got a bit cross with the church at Corinth. But do you know of all the letters that Paul wrote, and all but one of them he wrote to correct some problems. But of all the churches, do you know which one he was by far the most cross with? The Galatians. The Galatians. Not the Corinthians who were doing terrible things. The Galatians who'd gone from grace to law. And he was like, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he actually uses in quite lewd language. He says, at one point he says, I wish that those who are telling you to go back to legalism, to go back to trying to keep rules and regulations, I wish that they would would castrate themselves. Now the NIV uses a politer word, but that's what it means in the original Greek. I wish he's, he gets really cross because that kills our spirituality. It kills our faith. Romans seven. I've got to read this to you. This is this is where we're at. Romans. They've moved it again. No, that's. Romans, which is after Acts. There we are. Listen to this, what Paul says, Romans 7 verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law, and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So what Paul says is, he says to the Romans, do you realize that you've been married to the law And the law is a terrible husband. Legalism, the law is the husband from hell. Why? Because the law is a husband that's always telling you where you've gone wrong. Anyone live with someone who's always telling them what they're doing wrong, whatever they do, or you could have done that better, you did that wrong. I live with someone who keeps on telling me all that, do you know how depressing it is Do you know what what I do wrong? I live with me. And it's horrible when you live with that person. And they tell you, the law tells you all the time what you do wrong. And even worse than that, you can't argue with this husband because this husband is always right. The law is always right. So they're constantly condemning you and they're always right. And thirdly, they won't lift a finger to help you. They won't help you. They'll just condemn you. And the only way you can be free of them is if they die. And you're praying for your husband to die. There might be one or two who pray that. No, I won't go there. (laughs) Because that's for Keith and Juliet do marriage coaching for that. But you know what? You pray for your husband to die. But the trouble is, He won't die, because Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not one bit of the law will pass away. So this husband won't die. So do you know what Paul says? He says there's another solution, there's a better solution. Verse four, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to one another and to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Here's, here's, the, here's the answer God gives. The law's not gonna die, so we die. And I don't mean we're gonna die. I mean, we did die in Jesus. In Jesus, we died. When he died on the cross, we died in him. That's why Paul says to Galatians in 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by the power of the Son of God who gave himself up for me. I've been, when I was crucified with him so that I might live in him, so that I might live through him. And here's the, here's the great clue in that passage where Jesus talks about um, how the, the law won't die. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. He is the fulfillment. And he is Joseph, the child of grace. He is. He is Jonah. Who went down so that we might have life we're found in Christ. Our new identity does not come by effort and earning, but as a gift. It doesn't come by effort or earning. When we try and earn his love, when we try and earn spiritual, it's never enough. It never works. And if we ever think it is, we become like the older brother and we want to dismiss everyone else and we're horrible. It's a gift. If we want to understand that, one more. We come to the end. Picture of the, uh, an Old Testament picture that I love. Do you remember in Genesis, right at the beginning, Isaac has two sons. Esau, the hairy one, whom he loved. God, I won't say God loves hairy. He does love hairy people. Esau, the hairy one whom he loved, and Jacob, Jacob the mummy's boy, who dad wasn't that keen on. What does Jacob do in order to get the blessing? He puts on Esau's clothes. He pretends to be Esau. He puts on Esau's aftershave. And he goes, and And, and Isaac is pretty blind, and he can't see, and he feels Esau's clothes, and he smells Esau's smell, and he thinks he's blessing his beloved son Esau, when he's giving the blessing to Jacob. Now, with us, it doesn't work quite like that, but it says that we put on the clothes of Jesus. We are clothed in his righteousness, it says in the Bible. We are clothed in his righteousness. And so, our father in heaven who is not blind who is not fooled sees us in the clothes of his son's righteousness sees us and beco- not instead of his son but because of his son he blesses us with every flipping spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ because we are identified with him because who we are is, is, is in him and from him. And if that's for me, I'm not in. The father gives us every blessing that he gives his son. Now we can love this and we can hate it. Some of us, we love it and hate it at the same time. Two years ago, a bunch of my friends, some of whom had been to my house and seen it falling apart. I hadn't done anything to it in 20 years. The paint was coming off. In fact, not just the paint, I'm embarrassed to say. The plaster was coming off in places. There was damp and there was everything. And I hadn't bought a new anything and nothing worked very well. And they got together and they all put money in. And then when I was in Australia, I knew they were doing something, but I didn't realise the extent. I was in Australia for three weeks. A whole bunch of them went into my house and completely redid it. And uh, uh, um, my friend Phil, um, his building company, they, they knocked things down and they put things up and, and they got me a, a fridge freezer that is my pride and joy. <laughs> to be really honest, I don't care about anything else, but I have got the fridge freezer that I just look at it and I love it. And anyway, but we won't go there too much. And, 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 every, and it's not the fridge freezer. It's what it can carry. <laughs> and, and I came back. And, and when I arrived back, um, I was really surprised. Andy, about six in the morning, came to Heathrow Airport to meet me. And he never does that. And it was like, why? And it was like, well, I just wanted to. And then he drove me to my house. And instead of dropping me off, he was like, I'll come in with you. And I was like, okay. And then I noticed as I opened the door, he put his phone on. And he was videoing. And I went from room to room. And on the video, it's like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And it was unbelievable. The change was unbelievable. And can I say, I loved it. I loved it. But there was also a bit of me that hated it. And the bit of me that hated it was the bit that kept saying, "But I can't pay them back. What can I? This is so over the top. This is so extravagant. I owe, how can, I, I've got no chance. I can't do this to their houses. I can't, I can't pay them back. And I had to come to the place of, that's not the point. Learn to receive. And when we understand the gospel, the tragedy can be when we think we've got to pay him back. We can't. We never will. Receive it as a gift. Receive it as a gift. If you get this, it's the best start to the year. Absolutely finish. And I, I said this is it. The way we change is to look at him. The law, legalism, pushes you with its demands. Jesus pulls you with his magnificence and his beauty. He draws you. Being pushed never works. Being pulled and drawn and wooed by his magnificence and beauty is what changes us resolve this new year to meditate on him, to seek him, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the rest will be added. Seek the rest and you'll miss the rest. Seek his kingdom and his, his righteousness, not us, his righteousness and the rest will be added. Don't look in Disaster. Don't look out at other people. Not much better. Look up. Look up at him. That is how change comes. That is where joy comes. And that's where we're meant to be a people of joy. Absolutely last thing. I read this over the last few weeks and I can't for the life of me remember who said it, where I read it. So, I can't pretend it's an original Archie because I don't have any children. But somebody said that um, they had a four-year-old daughter and she was naughty. And they told her to go on the naughty step. And she was sitting on the naughty step. And they said she had to be there for five minutes. And they looked across and they could see her laughing. She was laughing and she was smiling. And they were a bit annoyed. We put you on the naughty step and you're laughing and smiling. And they said, why are you laughing and smiling? You're not able to play. You're on the naughty step. And she said, ah, but I'm playing on the inside. I'm playing on the inside. That's what happens when we live in grace. We play on the inside. Even when we're on the naughty step. Even when the finances don't quite match. Even when work is a nightmare even when our relationships are not quite right. It's learning to play on the inside. It's a joy that no one can take away because our identity is in him. We are clothed in his righteousness. We are hidden with Christ in God.